0: Throughout my time as Prime Minister of Australia, leading Australia's centre-right party, the Liberal Party, I faced across the House of Representatives the members of the centre-left party, the Labor Party. They were officially the opposition. But my real political enemies, the real political threats I always faced, were in my own party and on the right wing of the Liberal Party. Just as right-wing media, especially Fox News, had pulled the Republican Party to the right in the United States. So too in Australia, right-wing media, most of it owned by Rupert Murdoch as well, had pulled the Liberal Party to the right. This symbiotic relationship between populist right-wing politics and media shifted the centre of political gravity in many countries. It's had the result of many traditional centre-right voters feeling their party had left them. In Australia, thanks to our voting system, these abandoned centre-right voters could support an independent who aligned with their values. And so we have had the Teals. But not so in the United States, whose political culture and electoral system is skewed to protect the interests of the two big parties who are in effect able to choose their voters. Whereas in Australia, the voters can choose their candidates, whether they are from the big parties or not.
1: The once great party of Lincoln, Roosevelt and Reagan, has turned its back on the ideals of liberty and self-governance. Instead, it has embraced lies and deceit. We shelter the ignorant, the racist, who only stoke anger and hatred
0: to those who are different than us. Adam Kinzinger, was a Republican congressman from Illinois. He was on Capitol Hill the day it was attacked by voters who believed, wrongly, that their election had been stolen.
1: President Trump tried to erase his loss at the ballot box by parachuting an unqualified man into the top job at Justice. It was a power play to win at all costs with no regard for the will of the American people.
0: Adams stood up to his own party, voted to impeach President Trump, And he sat on the January 6th committee to investigate Trump's role in the attack and ultimately recommend his prosecution for inciting the insurrection. Adam, great to see you. How does it feel to be a Republican congressman and vote to impeach a Republican president?
1: For me, it was, it, it's a mix. It was a mix of, obviously, a little bit of fear. It's a big vote, right? I know that I'm entering uncharted territories with it. But I've also learned in, in 12 years of politics that the things you're most proud of are really the times that you kind of stood alone or stood with a smaller crowd, because it's a reaffirmation to you that you're doing the right thing and not acting out of kind of peer pressure. So yeah, it was a little bit of fearful. It was it was somewhat historic I'm sure but it also is one of the moments that, that as time goes on I'm probably most proud of was my willingness to do the right thing
0: you you must have felt the party left you just describe that because it was a it was a sea change the the arrival of Trump
1: yeah i mean it certainly was it's, it's interesting I, I when i ran in 20 i guess 2009 and in 2010 it was kind of a two year election and it was the 2010 when i was elected you know, people would put their arms around me and they'd be like, Adam, good job. Don't go Washington. And what you mean by that is like, go be your own man, right? Like stand alone, do the right mm-hmm. thing. And, and it was funny because in the last few years, the party has become, how come you're not doing what the party wants? Now you're your own man. And that was like a hit. And so if you look at 12 years ago from, hey, we want you to go kind of be your own person to why are you being your own person? It's a, it's a microcosm on just my level of how much that has changed. And look, I got into politics as, as I think, frankly, anybody that ran as a Republican uh, because they want smaller government. I believed in a strong national defense. One of my kind of first eye-opening moments as a Republican in DC was that there were actually Republicans, like people you know, like Rand Paul that wanted a smaller national defense. That was unthinkable to me. That number grew. Um, But what I saw when Donald Trump came, and I started to see it obviously sneaking in prior when we started to use, I say we, mostly Republicans, started to use cultural issues as as dividing issues. Look, they're very effective. Cultural issues are very motivating, right? Using fear is very motivating.
0: No, cultural issues. uh, So abortion, guns... Yeah, gay marriage. What else? It's like
1: abortion, guns, gay marriage—kind of rural versus urban. This idea that you know, middle America has been left behind. You know, you watch, uh, let's say MSNBC, and you see these you know liberals on TV telling you how to live, and 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 it's that cultural kind of like that division. You don't know how I think. I don't know how you think. And, and we utilized that. And I started to see that it became less about policy and more about anger. And Donald Trump, of course, accelerated that, and we can get into that. But that's where kind of when he got elected and I realized, you know, foreign policy doesn't matter anymore, smaller government doesn't matter, like, oh, man, we're in a really dark place.
0: But hasn't this produced a a really bizarre paradox in in politics that you're getting the Republican Party, particularly the Trump Republican Party, is getting... It's stronger support in areas which are are less affluent, less educated, more disadvantaged. And yet the Republican Party is advocating lower taxes, lower levels of government spending, which normally you would think people who fitted those socioeconomic descriptions would uh, be in favour of
1: we're we're like in the middle of a complete change a complete sea change right now um you know it's 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 basically you know if you think about the rural community so i have an well i have a couple uncles that are farmers one of my uncles used to be a uh, democrat he used to call himself a democrat now he's like the most hardcore trump supporter um and i think that's part of where that difference comes you know it's like yeah how is it that Middle to lower class America is advocating what used to be kind of policies focused on wealthier Americans. Well, it's because it goes to show the power of those dividing cultural issues.
0: Adam, I I, I t- totally agree with you, and I and I think the the the, the challenge that we face is in a fractured uh, social and political environment is ensuring that leaders try to bring the country their their countries together. But let's just just talk about anger you mentioned anger was the was the big motivator to vote so so when i first got into politics you know a long time ago the we always used to talk about the hip pocket nerve you know that was the most sensitive nerve Peace, people basically vote on voted on what was you know good for them and their family economically um you know enable them to get ahead and so forth or you know as clinton said once you know it's the economy stupid uh do you see that anger and resentment over these sort of uh, cultural, or social issues is now a bigger vote driver than economic self-interest?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So to an extent, they're all tied because I think, you know, if you look at like Appalachia, right, where there was huge addictions to uh, opioids and we saw the big opioid crisis mm-hmm. there. And, and of course, you know, the coal mines went away and jobs went away. So you you can use the cultural issue at that point, which is also tied to the economics. But if we're gonna separate them, yeah, I think at the moment, it's like humans just in general, I think, always have to have drama in their lives and politics is no different. And so at a time where you actually have unprecedented prosperity, I mean, that's the US, that's actually the Western world right now, right? Is unprecedented prosperity. You have every bit of information you need Uh, at your fingertips with your phone. We are you know, a, a military coalition, for instance, that's on the rise where China seems to be stumbling and certainly Russia is stumbling. It's kind of a good time to be alive, except that every piece of bad news is magnified. But at a time when it's good, actually that's when you can use cultural issues because people may not feel as economically vulnerable. So if we do, God forbid, end up going into a time of recession here, in the next year or so maybe then those pocketbook issues take over cuz we're on the maslow's hierarchy of needs right it's just you know food and shelter versus all the way at the top self actualization so uh, to to kind of hedge on your on your question it's almost combined but i think when people feel secure enough that their very life isn't at stake then it's like the drama of those cultural issues is what politicians exploit to divide people
0: Just stay with anger for a bit. Uh, you in the United States you you have a you know electoral system, a voting system where it's voluntary to vote. as you know in Australia we're one of the few countries where it's compulsory to vote. We go to great lengths to make sure that anyone over the age of 18 is on the electoral roll. Uh, you have to be on the electoral roll and if you don't vote you get fined 20 bucks. So our turnout in an election is is well over ninety percent. That's not the case in the United States. To what extent do you think these anger-type issues, you know, the the cultural issues, guns, abortion, gender issues, you know, gay marriage, et cetera, to what extent do you think these issues are used to get out the vote, to fire up the base and make sure people get off the porch or the couch and actually, go and vote. It's
1: actually a really good question because you know you and I have talked offline about this issue, and I was, I, I you know I was kind of in the middle on the idea of mandatory voting or, or compulsory voting because mm. it's like well, if somebody don't want to vote, they don't want to vote. But as you were just asking me that question, I start I was thinking about it, and thankfully you ask it, which is wait, if everybody has to vote, then all of a sudden you don't have this, you don't your the election isn't about this this need to turn out your base because everybody's turning out. And so it becomes at that moment, how do you get to the center? So I, yeah, I mean, I think, look, with, with literally just having been enlightened by your question on that, um, I, I definitely need to give it more thought. But I think if you have a situation in the United States where the vast majority of people go to the ballot box to vote, I can tell you at least when I've run elections then, my focus then would have changed to... How do I get those 90% that are going to turn out to like me over the next guy? So you still may have some negative campaigning, but it's definitely not going to be, hey, I need to make people so angry that they definitely come and vote. And so I actually, I think there's real merit to that. You know, look, Australia and the United States obviously have a lot in common, the UK, US and Australia. And we kind of see our politics somewhat follow each other a little bit. We, We certainly kind of feed off each other. But it seems to me, at least looking from the outside in, that Australia at least has done a little better job of avoiding the extremes than we have. And whether that's, whether that's mandatory compulsory voting, whether that's maybe the Australian people are just less likely to, to extremism, or maybe it's just how your system's set up. I think we can all learn from each other. And I think that's an area where us as U.S. policymakers should look in and be like, you know, I, you, guys have, you guys have a little less of the extremes than we do. Maybe we can learn something from that.
0: Yeah, well, look, one thing I've, I learned over the years is it's hard enough persuading your own citizens about your views as to how to run your own country, let alone telling other people how to run theirs. But the, <laughs> certainly from Australia, that's an unwise thing to do. Having said that, it is a, it is, the compare and contrast is very, is very valid. Look, we've got three things that we've had in our electoral system for, you know, a century or more. One is compulsory voting, as I described. The other one is what you call ranked choice voting. We've had that for a hundred years. And so if there are four candidates on the ballot, you number them one through four. And as you know, you know, the candidate, if no one gets 50% plus one on their first preferences, then you eliminate the last person and distribute their preferences until you know somebody has 50% plus or more than 50%. And that also brings people to the centre. And I've, no, it's, it's not used a lot in America, but I have noticed that in Maine and Alaska, where it is used, your Republican senators and Republican representatives are more to the centre of the Republican Party than at the MAGA Trumpy end of the Republican Party. Is that, do you, is that observation right? I mean, it's from a long way away.
1: No, it's 100% accurate. And in fact, I think ranked choice voting is on the rise. So if you'd have asked me three years ago to explain ranked choice voting, I couldn't have done it. You know, it was very rare. And now we have at least three or four states that are using it. We have local elections, uh, local jurisdictions are starting to use it. There are movements to put it on the ballot. What we have seen with ranked choice voting is that it absolutely works. It's confusing to people. It's confusing because it's very different than what we've ever had. But Sarah Palin lost in Alaska for a reason, and that was because of ranked choice voting.
0: The problem, it seems to me, is that if you basically only have a choice in practical terms between one of two parties, in your case, Democrat and Republican, and if one of them gets captured by an extreme for whatever reason, as yours has been, uh, by Trump and his supporters, uh, then your traditional supporters at the at a general election have two choices. One, well, three choices. One, they can hold their nose and vote for the Republican Party, notwithstanding they don't approve of Donald Trump. Two, they can vote Democrat, which might be a bridge too far. Or three, they can stay at home, which is an option they don't have in Australia. Um, what? the ranked choice voting thing gives the opportunity and making it easier for independents to run is that you can have a a viable alternative coming up the middle. And, of course, that message, that the message that sends to the big parties is, as I said earlier, don't run off to the extremes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I would actually argue that, that uh, those people have actually a fourth choice. And the fourth choice is instead of holding your nose, it's actually to self-radicalize to that position because that makes it easier. Mm. So if I'm sitting here as a Republican and I hate Donald Trump, but I realize I got to vote Republican over the Democrats for whatever reason, I can either live with that guilt of having to pull the trigger for the Republicans or I can choose to self-radicalize so that it comforts me. And that's what I think a lot of people in my base have done.
0: Adam, radicalization, Uh, You know, we often, you know, we normally talk about it in in terms of, you know, violent, kinetic extremism, you know, terrorism and so forth. But it is a feature in the political environment and it's driven by anger, I think. To what extent do you think this phenomenon is driven by the, you know, the media in America, uh, both social and broadcast? I mean, to what extent do you think Fox News has driven the, radicalization of the Republican party or, and, and if you like, enabled the rise of Trump. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it has done that. Right. I mean, it's, you know, on the one hand, I could sit here and, and make a pretty compelling argument that Fox kind of goes where the money is. Right. And it, but I also know that Fox learned and uh, you know, Fox isn't alone in this, but certainly they were the, the leader. They learned that anger you know, the flashing graphics all over TV, they know that that anger gets you addicted. It keeps you on the line. It keeps you on the line to sit here and look at, uh, I'm going to watch this, sh- this over and over again. So I really do think media has driven radicalization. And also, you know, people, yes, we, they've allowed themselves to be radicalized. And yes, leaders who are not leading have also fed into that. But I think had Fox News never existed, you know, maybe something would come and replace it. But without Fox News, I think we'd be in a much better position in this country.
0: Would we have seen the January 6th assault on the Capitol if there had been no Fox News?
1: It's an interesting question. I think you probably wouldn't have seen it because although I think actual January 6th, you saw a lot of that being kind of organized and drilled in on the internet on some of the more radical sites, Mm. people never would have gotten to that point where... You know they believe that. I mean, truly, you got to think about this, Malcolm. If if you believe that Satanists were running the government, I mean, the U.S. Constitution compels all of us to actually overthrow the government in the United States if Satanists are running it. Right? We just most people recognize that Satanists aren't running the government. The problem is when you are convinced over and over again on television that even if they're not avowed Satanists, they're doing the work of Satan. Uh, and then you go on the internet and you see that they drink baby's blood and you eventually self-radicalize to that point, that's why you get January 6th. And, and democracies, can't. They, for democracies to survive, for self-governance to survive, you only need like one thing. You need to know that if you vote, your vote counts. When you watch the election results on TV, that tally shows you and your family's votes. If you are convinced that that vote doesn't count, you don't have self-governance. And eventually, if it happens cycle after cycle, you get violent. Look, I like to look at January 6th as a symptom. So a lot of the times we can get channelized on what happened on January 6th. Obviously it was a horrific day, I lived through it. You know, I'm in the US Capitol with a gun, for God's sakes. I mean, who would think? Um, But the real story of January 6th is the rot that led to it. And then after January 6th, the fact that that still exists. And uh, and that to me, when the big lie, you know, Donald Trump began setting that up, frankly, in the summer before the election. He goes, the only way they're going to win is if it's stolen. That began that narrative. And then on election night, he broke all precedent and came out and said, frankly, this election was stolen from us. Election night. Uh, that's when I had my heartbreak. I was never a Donald Trump fan, but that's when I had my heartbreak, like this is very dangerous. And so yeah, that big lie that, that Joe Biden never won is is so detrimental to the future of this country. And there's still a lot of people that blame. By the way, I think the vast majority of members of Congress, if not all of them, know that that is not true, but they're unwilling to lead. And you know, uh, as a leader yourself, particularly as a prime minister, that you had to, sometimes, yeah, okay, we, we do what the, what the Australian people are asking of us, and sometimes I have to ask of the Australian people. I have to lead, right? They need you to lead. And when it comes to leaders, whether you're in Congress, whether you're in the White House, if all we're doing is chasing this conspiracy theory and not leading people away from it, we are a dog chasing our own tail, and eventually you're gonna get hit by traffic. line the most senior leadership of the justice department from attorney general bill, bill Barr to jeff rosen his successor and his deputy rich donahue everyone except jeff clark was telling president trump the very same thing the conspiracy theories were false in short he was willing to sacrifice our republic to prolong his presidency
0: look Optimism. I I think you and I are both glass half full guys. You've just had the midterm elections. Um, Do you see that as a sign of a, the American polity coming back to its senses? I mean, you know, is American politics coming back to the centre?
1: a great question. And and I think it's good to be optimistic, but you don't want to be optimistic to the point where you're like, hey, my house is on fire, but at least I don't have to change the carpet, right? Like, where you just kind of like optimistic for optimism's sake, you know? (laughs) And uh, so I do think that this last election cycle, it's like a victory in a battle in a long war. And so we can celebrate this, right? This is a, this is a moment. This is something that we won uh, or we can call it like, we can compare it to Dunkirk, right? We're still in a really dark place, but at least we we were basically able to withdraw to fight again. Mm. And so I look at this and say, yes, it is a repudiation of sort of Republican Trumpism. However, you know, we still got, there are many of these candidates that are completely unacceptable that still got within two or 3% of winning these races. Mm. Donald Trump has had a really terrible rollout of his campaign, but he still has 35% of the Republican Party that without question would support him. So I think the optimistic thing for me is if you look at the trend of history, particularly, you know, I know American politics, we go through ups and downs, ups and downs. We're kind of in a 1920s moment right now, and we came back from that. Um, So from that cycle perspective, I'm optimistic from what we saw. But this is no time for us, and I include you in this because you you have a passion for democracy. It's not the time for any of us to rest because this is the time where you you maybe laid a good punch in the boxing match. But you've got to come back with a couple more hooks to knock him down or else he's just going to stumble and recover. And that's kind of the moment we're at.
0: That was former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. The 1920s moment, the dark place that Adam described, is something we'll delve into next in the podcast.
1: I've spent the last couple days going back and rereading, you know, Mein Kampf and some of the speeches made in the 30s uh, and early 40s by adolf hitler and and the nazi party and the language is not that much different than what we're seeing today
0: the podcast was written and produced by myself and lisa main music was composed by helena Chaika.